Welcome to another episode of Anthropod. I'm Darren Byler. And I'm Jonah Rubin. We've been hearing a lot in the news these days about the Ebola epidemic. Most of the news coverage has focused on the immediate medical questions of how best to stop this epidemic. But here at Cultural Anthropology, it's been making us think about an article by Charles Briggs that appeared in the May 2014 issue of the journal about a rabies epidemic that happened in Venezuela. And I understand that this article takes a bit of an unusual form, right, Darren? That's right. The article is titled Dear Dr. Freud, and as that name implies, it takes the form of a letter that Professor Briggs wrote to Sigmund Freud about the experience of a traumatic epidemic in rural Venezuela. As he was grappling with what he had encountered, Professor Briggs found that the conventional form of the academic essay did not quite allow him to consider processes of mourning as fully as he wanted. He decided instead to write about how he was drawn into the mourning process as an anthropologist and photographer, and how mourners frame their work of mourning in relation to the long history of colonialism in the form of a personal letter to one of the first analysts of grief, Dr. Freud. And so you've actually had the chance to arrange a conversation between Dr. Briggs and a psychoanalyst, Dr. Maureen Katz. Why a psychoanalyst? One of the goals Professor Briggs had in writing the letter to Dr. Freud was that he wanted to open up a discussion between psychoanalysis and the anthropological study of mourning. This podcast episode gave Professor Briggs an opportunity to discuss the questions he had posed to Dr. Freud about mourning with Dr. Katz, a psychoanalyst who has worked extensively with survivors of torture and political oppression. It also gave the two of them a chance to think through the anthropological and psychoanalytic aspects of oral poetry and the material experience of mourning. Professor Briggs and Dr. Katz end the episode by talking about how anthropology itself might be reconsidered as a work of mourning. They argue that the critical attentiveness of the anthropological method might be a very important contribution to the way we understand the future of our lives together. Sounds great. Let's take a listen. So, Charles, it is so great to be talking to you about the ideas of this letter. I suppose we could say that um, since we don't know if Sigmund got it or not, at least it got sent to me. Can you tell us about the project itself and how you got involved in it? Well, first, Maureen, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, for me, from the beginning, this is a, a project that really, even though I'm interested in pushing the boundaries of anthropology, it was never contained within them. I was always interested in a dialogue with psychoanalysis and hoping for something of a conversation with psychoanalysts. So today, for me, um, even though I must admit a tiny bit of anxiety, this is just um, the, the culmination for me of being able to think that this could be a project that would, that would create that kind of a dialogue. This was a strange um, encounter. It did not begin as research. Uh, along with uh, a Venezuelan public health physician and medical anthropologist, Dr. Clara Montini Briggs, we wrote a book on a cholera epidemic. And we had always thought that whatever came in the way of funds received by the book would always be taken back to the rainforest of the Delta Amacuro of Venezuela. After all, this was kind of money produced by writing about the experience of people there. So we had won the Staley Prize and some had some royalties and other prize money. So we took back our $17,000 in 2008 to work with people collaboratively, to work with a healer, Tirso Gomez, and a, an EMT and nurse, Norbelis Gomez, to, to create sort of a horizontal knowledge exchange that might result in a different idea about how to do healthcare delivery. And all of a sudden, we were trapped in the middle of an epidemic. People were dying, and folks said, 
okay, health project is good, but two of our oldest friends, uh, Conrado Moraleda and Enrique Moraleda said, we have now, after a year of people dying, decided that we're taking over and we're forming our own team to investigate this epidemic. And so we are going to take along you, Dr. Clara, as our physician, and you, Docomoro, my name in Warao, the language, as our anthropologist, and we, the six of us, along with Norbelis and Tirso, will figure out what this epidemic is that stumped the epidemiologists and doctors, and we'll take this message directly to the national government in Caracas. We went from community to community. We found 14, area, 14 places where people had died from this strange disease. Uh, we were able to get together uh, members of the community, all of the parents who had lost children, and ask them in an open-ended way to tell us their story, what had happened. And pretty soon it was clear um, that the stories were all the same, the symptoms were quite similar, and Clara, as a very good physician, was able to see that clinically it was rabies. So we um, were able to also determine that most of the people who had died, we documented 32 deaths of children and six young adults, had been bitten by a vampire bat nocturnally about a month to two months before they came down with symptoms. So everything looked as if it was rabies. The team uh, took this result to the health ministry in Caracas. There, unfortunately, uh, for very complex reasons that we can talk about, the response was not entirely um, positive, partly because the idea that the people who are stereotyped as being incapable of understanding a doctor who speaks about illness should suddenly turn the situation around and become knowledge producers seem to be quite threatening. To threaten. That's a very psychoanalytic idea, you know? It's the patient who lets you know what the content is and what the meaning is of what the symptoms are. Mm, precisely. And, and collaborative. This was not a bottom-up or a top-down situation. Clara is a physician. I'm an anthropologist. We had a healer, an EMT, and two people who are political leaders. And it was very much, and working closely with the parents, it was a sort of collaborative knowledge exchange. So this letter formed part of the way in which I've tried to respond to um, the way that people there interpolated me through their own work of mourning. You also have hours of video that you tell us some about in the letter, you tell Dr. Freud about in the letter. Um, and that some of that video is available on the website along with the article, is that right, or with the letter? Part of the way that I was interpolated by them was as an anthropologist um, to help with the documentation and the epidemiological work, to help set up this um, these sorts of meetings where we had a combination of narrative, personal narratives of the parents, where we had a sort of dispute mediation, community narration, um, where there was in, uh, healing techniques that was part of the knowledge production as well as epidemiology, and then when there was a patient with clinical uh, medicine. But they also knew that I had a brief career as a documentary photographer, so they said, we want you to take pictures. They understood that they would not be able to um, access to get their story themselves into the national and international press, which is something they wanted without images. So sometimes after a mother talked about losing two or three of her children in a tremendously poignant and um, moving account, they kind of pushed me forward and said, all right, now take her picture, which was actually quite hard. And they asked, and they asked me, 
to film as much of the telling of these narratives and of our work as possible. So I put um, a small, a couple of those clips that were the ones that were spoken about in, that I wrote about in the letter to Dr. Freud, on the website, some of the photographs, and also a friend who's Swiss but working in Italy and uh, in Germany, um, put together some of my footage into a very short um, film that looks at the Delta and the epidemic. So maybe we can talk more about the letter itself then, um, about the form and the trajectory of it. You're writing to a dead person to talk about the active process of mourning and about the laments you participated in there in the Delta. And the form of the letter, when I'm reading the letter, brings me very much into the present. It's a form of now. I read it in a present voice and address, right? It's You're talking in present tense terms. And even if it's to a dead person, and so it very much has us be alive with your lament and with the laments that you're speaking about. And I wondered if you could say something for those who haven't read the letter yet and perhaps for those who have as well, something about the narrative arch of the letter. Well, the letter came from a feeling, um, really, of frustration and failure. I had um, tried to write this article over a period of time. I was trying to bring, um, on the one hand, dealing with this experience, and particularly with the laments, which were the beginning of the way that we were interpolated within this work. Showing up for the first meeting, we ended up next to a dead body in a family that was... That a was, child. Yeah, well, this was a young man, uh -huh. um, Mamerto Pizarro, uh -huh. and um, where we walked up and all of a sudden were confronted with the singing of these laments. And so partly from, our, from the beginning, and all the time the meeting went on next door, the laments, there are no walls in the houses. The sounds of the laments were constantly sort of over um, um, playing, overloading the, all of the words that emerged in the meeting. So from the beginning, my experience of the epidemic and the work that we were doing was always overlaid with the sounds of lament and the claims they made on us, which I could probably talk about later, with the nature of the way in which what it means to listen to those laments Laments that you never really get out of your own, not only memory, but corporeal experience. Mm. So then, you know, I was trying to, th and frankly, this was not easy. The, the work in the epidemic was very difficult. So coming back and really trying to make analytical sense of that, um, I, of course, thought about Freud's uh, essay, Morning and Melancholia and found that extremely powerful to go back to the essay and, and read that and read a lot of other work by Klein and Nasio and a range of other psychoanalysts who were thinking about object relations um, that emerge within Freud's essay and thinking about mourning along those lines. But I couldn't bring them together. There's also my own particular outsider status vis-a-vis -vis both of these particular arenas. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I'm also not a woman singing, crying in the Delta. And somehow it was the incommensurability as well between the fact that I was deeply interpolated by these laments and the experience, but on the other hand, here was a text, mm -hmm. right, which didn't seem to have the same type of engagement for me. And, and then all of a sudden when I said, I know, I'll write him a letter. Mm -hmm. It clicked psychically and I think intellectually for me. It opened up a space that was creative where in some ways I could develop 
um, the same type of relationship as a writer to that essay and to Freud in some ways of a kind that I had to the Delta. And of course, the form was amazing. Laments. They're singing to the dead and, and the living become overhearers. And with a letter to somebody who is deceased, I was also writing, speaking to a dead person and casting you, my readers, as overhearers. <coughs> this is also wonderfully because, you know, a letter, this wonderful retro sort of genre now, has its own complex temporalities. I'm writing it in the moment, and I feel as if I'm speaking to Dr. Freud. But with a letter, I know that by the time somebody actually gets it, the speaking act is in the past. So I'm looking forward to the moment that he might read it and anticipate how he might read it, even though I know that this sort of there's this temporal disjuncture, which is exactly what happens with laments. Well, and I think that that is a fantastically successful aspect of the letter, because basically we're eavesdropping on your conversation with Dr. Freud. I mean, we're invited, but so we don't have the guilt about eavesdropping, but it makes all of us, everyone who's reading it, in the position of what I'd say a psychoanalyst is, is in the position of. That is, we're not passively reading an article, but we have to actively engage in reading something that's being addressed to someone. And we assume it's addressed to us, even if it's addressed to Dr. Freud. And we have to feel we're pulled into the affect of the, of the questions that you're asking and your distress and the sadness of the laments. So it's, a, it's a, I think, a wonderful form in the way that only a letter can do in that kind of um, mixed temporality, as you talked about. It's about appreciating the poetics and hearing them in the same way we hear a letter. It occurs to me it's very different than hearing a dream. When you listen to someone's dream, it's not, even if you know it's being dreamt to be told to you, it's not a direct address to you. And the letter is a direct address. It's really like a lament, I think. It's an internal process and a form of address, both and multi-directional. It's fascinating. So the um, I've done exhibitions that were primarily of um, a young woman, Elvia Torres, um, from who was from the time that she was experiencing the symptoms. She refused to go, having watched her husband die in in an urban hospital, and her parents um, asked Clara as a physician and and also Norbelis as a nurse to work with her. Um, they gave her palliative care, but they also asked me to take photographs all the way through the process of her disease, uh, through the course of her disease, um, through the wake that was um, conducted for her with the ritual wailing, and then of the funeral. So I've actually had um, these, um, displayed these photographs in an exhibition. Yeah. And the second one, the photographs, was a brilliant um, German uh, printer um, Geert Schwab, who experimented with the format, blew these up photographs up to there where they were about one by one and a half meters. And when they were that large, people could not look at them, but they had to define their own affective relationship to those photographs. They had to somehow either walk into the frame or refuse to walk into mm. the frame. They had to go through the affective journey between a young woman who is trying to stay alive and her parents surrounding her through her death, through the wailing and the experience of the funeral. So that seems to be very much the experience you described with the letter. 
of in some sense really inviting viewers or readers to sort of define their own relationship to this um, event. Yeah, that sounds very powerful. I have to say that the letter is more um, lenient on us as the readers and allows us to off the hook in some ways and that it's it allows us to also bring our critical um, reading to it so we feel it but it's not overwhelming. Um, now you talk about in the letter the idea of temporality and the tempor specifically the temporality of poetics that Freud uses nouns and the German is full of nouns in mourning and melancholia and that the laments are full of verbs and um, and you talk about the temporality of the poetics and I wondered if you might say something about what you mean by poetics it's a great question um, maybe I can sort of come at to the uh, come at the idea of poetics from three ways so one is um, there's a sort of tradition within anthropology and specifically linguistic anthropology of thinking about poetics the Russian formalists in the early 20th century suggested that poetics wake up language sort of takes the routinized meanings of words and grammatical patterns um, and sort of forces us to, to re-examine them and potentially reposition them in language and in daily life in particular sorts of ways to sort of invite new possibilities um, and patterns but as much of perception as of speaking um, and I think that's what poetics does. Uh, acoustics also breaks free of sort of reference seemingly to take us into the bodies that are producing speech and then also taking those sounds and placing them within our own bodies so a very different relationship to language and that is something that I thought was extremely powerful um, within the laments and a part that was not as resonant within within mourning and melancholia which I found really amazing because one thing I've always loved about Freud's work specifically his book on jokes and the interpretation of dreams is his tremendous attention to poetics so I mean the idea of poetics as constituting the psyche thinking about the processes by which dreams create meaning um, often around by disrupting referentiality mm -hmm. um, and um, by using the formal properties of language including rhyme and puns and other types of plays on words that he captures brilliantly in both of those books to sort of transform everyday understandings not just of words but of objects of everyday life of events um, and therefore to generate new meanings and perceptions so I thought that you know here I kind of wanted to bring that element that I found so resonant in other parts of Freud's oeuvre into the mourning and melancholia here and the third way and is simply I had no choice I walked into the scene and there were laments mm -hmm. that were screaming in my ear with these powerful poetics that did the work of mourning in particular sorts of ways so the specificity of poetics in this way has to do with heard sound transmitted sound not just written or as opposed to written words so the um, certainly not just um, poetics in the sense of poetry but really um, the way in which um, the formal properties of language mm -hmm. themselves be part of, become part of the creation of meaning not simply as vehicles for reference in a lament 
That's also done in sound, though, right? Not um. absolutely. I mean, there's no here. Writing is something that I would introduce through the transcription mm-hmm. of those, and of course, writing through documents and other sorts of ways. So here, really, part of it is think about in a lament. There are two parts: as a as a woman cries literally over the body, often of her child, of her mother, um, of, uh, other another relative, and composes these tiny poetic capsules that actually engage in the hypercathexis, the work of, of taking the loved one, this person who's just died, and making them seem alive, and bringing some part of their life, and with the grammar of the language, it is in the present tense, and there's a particular what we call an aspect form, which means it just seems to extend on indefinitely in time, and this invites the listener, again the overhearer, to sort of feel as if, you know, the work of this person, we can imagine them coming back, still being alive, and then at the end of that very line comes the reality testing that Freud talked about, where you pop that bubble, and you say, and now you've left me, and you will never come again. Mm -hmm. So it's the grammar of the language, the way in which the lines are laid out um, in formal terms, the musical dimensions, and the acoustics that do that sort of work from line to line to line. So you have no choice. You listen to a limit, you get drawn into this world, and then it is exploded. Every person who's performing picks up on that image, translates that into their own experience, extends it, and then also so it becomes a collective poetics, not just an individual act of genius. Mm-hmm. So individual voices and a collective voice and always in this work of doing, I mean, Freud brilliantly captured the way in which, on the one hand, we grasp on this image. I mean, Joan Didion, the year of magical thinking, of trying to feel as if her daughter and her husband were somehow still alive, would be coming back any moment, keeping their image alive within her, and then the work of saying, and they're gone. Mm-hmm. And the remarkable way in which it's the poetics and the musicality of lament that do that, not in some long extended linear period, but over and over from moment to moment. At the moment of mourning. Well, and in fact, it's interesting because your plea in writing the letter, because it's more than just a intellectual exercise. It's a plea for Freud to take this piece into his body of work too, right? Into mourning and melancholy and take the idea of the lament. And you you mention Laplanche in your letter and how he uses poetics, that of Homer, right, and the Odyssey, to really, Laplanche, to really talk about how Penelope mourns Ulysses. But you quote his poetry, and Homer's poetry is as quoted by Laplanche. And so other thinkers have taken mourning and melancholy in different ways and said you have to add something of the of a lament to it. Maybe not the laments that you talk about, but of the poetics, right? to really understand about what losing, what unweaving a relationship to another is about. Well, I, I'm really glad that you brought up Laplanche and also Nacio, uh, and mm-hmm. as, who's really written so beautifully about this. If there's an invitation to psychoanalysts to sort of think about um, ways in which there might be not just what anthropologists have said, but frankly, what lamenters, right? What other yeah. people have done to really theorize 
to add to our understandings of mourning and object relations, there's also an invitation there to anthropologists to read this brilliant work in psychoanalysis, which really, I mean, I think in terms of my own understanding and my own sort of grappling with these laments, help to open up questions amazingly. I mean, Nasio, this idea that one thing we do as we love someone is that we take that other person inside of us the way that ivy grows on a building. So that person reaches inside of us and becomes part of us, just as our love reaches outside of us and helps to form that person. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, he doesn't exactly go into what happens, but when you clip those vines and you realize part of me just died inside that other person, and what do I do with that part of me that is that other person inside of me? I mean, that for me is an extremely powerful metaphor. And again, not to say that's what laments do, but one could think about how it is the poetics are the building of those individual lines of tracing those influences, those parts of that other person, of the momento that's inside of me, and vice versa. So I, I thought that was wonderful. If, if through this letter I could also extend what is a long tradition, I mean, totem and taboo? Right of psychoanalysts reading anthropology and of anthropologists reading psychoanalysis, I'd be very happy. But you mentioned two, um, well, one psychoanalyst, Franz Fanon, and one psychoanalytic thinker, Judy Butler, mm -hmm. and you talk about both of their um, their ways of talking about grievability, and I, and the laments um, allow for. An understanding, I think, of grievability, and you, you just were talking about the community that grieves. And um, you mentioned about Fanon and Butler's ideas about whose pasts are remembered, whose futures are lost, which realities are tested. And I, I wanted to quote the what you quoted of Fanon's, the multiple forms of symbolic violence that organized space in the stairwell is part of the reality that references the kind of racism that keeps an epidemic from being recognized um, until someone, someone listens to the laments. Now you and Dr. Martin Briggs listened to the laments and it was through that, not through linear medical knowledge, but keen clinical skill and but listening beyond the manifest content to the latent content that what the, what was being said could allow an understanding of what the epidemic actually was to come to to be that Dr. Briggs could understand, oh, this is rabies, where other public health doctors were not able to understand it or listen at all. Well, the, um, the quote with respect to Fanon that you mentioned is particularly how I'm thinking about him um, when one of the fathers was talking about being crowded under the stairwell with, um, while well, his son was dying in the ICU in an urban hospital with you know, scores of other people, you know, all people um, low income um, and not left, not allowed to be in the waiting room, but forced onto the, this you know, tiny crowded area. Mm -hmm. And even in the midst of this, after all of the, you know, having left the rainforest, being in two different hospitals, um, then you know, a child um, says, look, Indians. Right? And it just, mm -hmm. for me, that you know, could not have evoked Fanon um, and just the sort of, you know, his comment about getting his body back um, clad in mourning so that now it had been re-inscribed 
um, with the sort of language of racial difference and racial inferiority in this moment. So that's what that really brought up for mm -hmm. me there. But what's, uh, I mean, part of what's amazing thinking about this is that, um, you know, Butler suggests in Frames of War that specific lives cannot be apprehended as injured or lost if they're not first apprehended as living, and raises the question, what is a life? And suggesting that also if you don't face the question of precariousness and of building a more inclusive and egalitarian way of recognizing precariousness, <coughs> then the issue of grievability is not possible. And vulnerability. And vulnerability. So for me, the laments are amazing because what are they work that they do? And we're also talking about people here who have lost multiple children and have been ex distraught and angry that there was in some sense not more of a response on the part of health authorities of coming and saying, these were significant lives. We will not stop until we have a diagnosis. I mean, a year later, no diagnosis. And at that point, very little effort to produce one on the part of government health authorities. Um, they did try early on, but they weren't then. So here in the lament, it is precisely that movement of saying, this is the life. Face this life. Think about the specificity, the individuality of this person and what they, and what they meant. The specific life that was captured as we walked up was of Mamerto, who was 22 years old, and as one of the greatest indigenous leaders of the, who had founded this community, Librado Moraleda, had tried, it was dying of cancer. This was somebody who was a big part of the indigenous social movement in Venezuela. So it was thinking, you know, who's going to be able to carry on and found somebody who came not, as he did, from a bilingual community founded by missionaries with much more access to education and uh, government services, but somebody from a small community primarily what I was speaking, right? and who would be able to be, and, and sent him off to the indigenous University of Venezuela. This guy was brilliant and had studied there. He had already written two books that were in the process of being published. Um, and this was the guy who died. Mm. Right? So saying, you know, and you went to the, his mother crying, you went to the indigenous university, sort of bringing forth the specificity and the value of this life at the same time, talking about the tremendous pain surrounding the death. Yeah. Here you have those two sides of the creation, of the emphasis on the value of a life, and also on the grievability of a death, coming together again in aesthetically marked terms in the space of 20 seconds. And again, doing that work collectively, where the form of the lament says, don't just listen to this, buddy. This is something that goes from into your body. This is powerful in sound terms. It goes into your ears. It goes into your head. You're listening to maybe 12 women just you know, doing these laments at a high volume. Your body resonates with this. Now, speaking of the voices inside of us, the, the laments are gendered. Right? It's primarily women who are doing the laments? In many areas of the Delta Makuro, men do not cry at all. They do not sing laments. Mm -hmm. Here, uh, men do. It's very close relatives, and they ordinarily do this in a more restricted way. So it's remarkable that Mamerto's younger brother was there with the women singing 
and was also he was creating his own verses taking what his mother and grandmother was saying and saying you know i we were working together for the contractor who was building houses in our community we sawed the boards together so this was remarkable the father in another for elvia later on also mourned but primarily just saying you know with with the refrain the the, the words of of loss but what's fascinating is that ordinarily here what you find is that um, there are ways in which the uh, many types of discourse that are seen as being extremely consequential um, become wrapped up with patriarchal authority. So state you know, government authorities come and primarily men claim the right to, to be able to speak with them and negotiate with them. Men, except for postmenopausal women, uh, men are the healers. Men are the myth tellers. Mm. Men consolidate a lot of political power within communities. And often women um, are listening to men engage in what they would consider often to be symbolic violence. And um, often, and I have heard women literally silenced when in meetings, they say, you know, what are you doing? You shouldn't do this. Someone dies and the men get it. Their words are extracted from those meetings, from those threats, from all of those other sorts of contexts, and they are replayed, often in the most insulting ways, within the lament, in a time at which men's role is to shut up and listen. And of course, since the woman is not speaking in the sense of volitional speech, the cultural construction of the lament is that women, that this, these are words that come from inside, uh-huh. not through conscious mediation. So she, right? they can say whatever that comes to them. They can say whatever comes to them, but those words are taken as being truth. Uh-huh. So men can't say, you know, they, first of all, men are silenced. Second of all, men can't then say, um, you know, you can't say that about me, you're entirely wrong. Right. So here is a powerful way in which laments are gendered through the listening uh-huh. as much as through the performance. But the performance and the listening are multiple layers that reach back through every moment of daily life, just like Freud's work on dreams, where he talks about how the dream going back and grabbing some piece of daily life and replaying that in a different sort of well, way. Well, actually, I was thinking about Morning and Melancholia because as an analyst, when I read Morning and Melancholia, well, maybe not the first time, but many times after, at some point, I stopped thinking about it as being a text about mourning and thought of it as what the first text about object relations, about how we internalize those that we love and make them part of ourselves, as you and I were talking about a moment ago, but how you form who the person is inside, the, how you form yourself, your, your subjectivities, if you will. And what you're talking about here is the laments as not only having to do with the grieving, but also forming what the subjectivity is of the entire community, because it goes to the past and the present and the future, and it's all reviewed. There's a whole historical context. And I I was very struck in the laments that you talk about in the letter about how they have to do with the multiple subjectivities in mourning, so that a mother laments and says the words of the son who's dying. And so she's not only, you see not only her subjectivity, it's her as mother, but you see her subjectivity of her as her identification with her son, who says these words to her that she then repeats. And I thought it was fantastic that the lament allows for 
a intergenerational subjectivity to be presented? Um, I think that Freud's essay is brilliant on the issue of object relations. I would hate to think that we could not read the essay as also helping us think through issues of mourning. Oh, I think it absolutely does. Especially, I think it absolutely does. Remember, um, you know, part of the reason that one would want to think about mourning here is we're talking about communities where 26% um, of the children die in the first five years of life, where they're active tuberculosis. Um, you know, there was an epidemic of cholera that, according to the work that I did with uh, Clara Mantini Briggs, may have killed some 500 people. So, I mean, death is omnipresent. That's and also, right. when you think about object relations, precisely through mourning, what happens is that the precariousness of object relations is never out of the out of focus. I mean, think about think about a lament which is saying, you know, here is is sort of extracting the process of the forma formation of object relations, and then clapping its hands at the end of each line and saying. And it's gone. So you would think, given psychoanalysis's history with, and Dr. Freud's history with World War II, and of course he died before the Holocaust, better in the process of it, but the, the notion that uh, much was forged in the fire of collective genocide, right? And many genocides after that. So it seems high time to have psychoanalysis have a, a clear understanding about what happens in a whole collective kind of dying and who is grievable, you know. Mm. Uh, there is a photo that you have in the letter, and it's the photo of someone who's going to die. The daughter is going to die. It's taken before she's dead, right? And when I look at that photo, it's so dramatic to me in the context of this letter. And what I see is something that's in the present, my present, I'm viewing it, and yet I know it's something from the past. I see a girl who's alive, but I know she's dead. I know that she's going to be dead shortly after the photo's taken, and yet I see her and she's still alive. And it is so terribly sad. And I think, you know, the photo served for me as a signifier of the temporality of a romance. You know, it made me feel like that sadness that I imagine you must have felt as a witness to all of these events, which must have been just just so traumatic. But the idea that the confusion of temporality that a photo brings and a sense of a loss of hope that the photo brings or photos bring is so powerful. You know, you look at a photo, you say, ah, oh, that person's still alive for a moment. No, they're dead. And they've been dead for a very long time, but when I saw that photo, they were alive. It just was a remarkable uh, insertion into the letter, I thought. Well, this was, um, it was, um, in some ways, one of the most difficult, was most poignant um, moments of the project, and one of the moments in which the brilliant, the brilliance of these four um, the four indigenous members of the team really came to the fore. So from the beginning, from this first moment in that meeting, Enrique um, Moraleda said, and, and I want to ask your permission, he's kind of like doing his IRB forms <laughs> with the community and said, we want to record everything and we want photographs because we want a record of this that we can take to Caracas. So the making of discourse port portable, 
as I suggest in the essay, was really part of the plan from the beginning. But they know that because of the laments as well, they know she is going to be dead. At the moment they're asking you to do the recordings, they not only are asking you to take a picture of her alive, knowing she's going to be dead, but also somehow they can think about the future. They don't have a loss of hope. They have a sense in collective action that they can think about the future and know we have to take this. This girl who's alive, who's going to be dead, we have to take this recording so that something can happen. They've done sort of applied derrida of thinking about the iterability of discourse. Uh-huh. And this is something that, you know, laments are powerfully placed within a moment, powerfully placed within a particular context. I mean, when the coffin is brought out, all of a sudden the lamenters, the volume, the intensity just goes through the roof because that moves the funeral one the morning one step towards its conclusion and the departure and the loss of the body. At the same time, they're saying this is stuff that's meant to circulate. You, you listeners, you must take this. And they're telling you where they want you to take this. And of course, it's not just the referential part of language where there are messages saying, and we want you to tell Chavez about this death. But it's also they any word that was spoken in the meeting next door was infused with the affect of lament and therefore could never be separated from that particular moment at the same time that it had to circulate. So, the photographs. The first photographs are of the young man who had died. The photographs that you're talking about are of his wife, who was was just at that moment beginning to become ill. Our work consisted of rising at dawn every morning and going and visiting her, going out all day long through the rainforest and coming back in the evening and seeing her and, of course, giving her more palliative care. And this was the last moment. I think it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. We had to go off and continue the work, and it was clear that she was near death. And she had hydrophobia. She couldn't look at a glass of water, mm-hmm. right? She would freak out. But she That's was, part of rabies. Exactly. Um, and she was, But on the other hand, she was tremendously parched. So Clara um, went to the canoe, got surgical cotton, and took a bowl of water and put it behind um, Elbia, where she couldn't see it, and taught her mother to take a cotton ball and dip it in the water and then to moisten her lips. Mm. And that's why the mother has cotton in her hand in this photograph. It was her last act of maternal care one hour before her daughter died. So they wanted photographs up to be taken. Now, so what happens, we end up in the middle of the lobby of the uh, National Health Ministry. They refuse to see us, they refuse to accept the report, they tell the uh, um, the four indigenous members, go back to the rainforest. They'd already gone to the regional government there multiple times and had been told, be quiet, don't say anything about this. So here at that point, the photographer, so reporter showed up right, because this was becoming a big story. I mean, you know, it's David and Goliath. You have six people um, who are trying to talk about this epidemic, and the government basically says, you know, we're going we're going to um, silence you. Six people but four dead bodies. Six, right? well, we're talking about the six members of our right. team showing up in Caracas. Right. 38 deaths that we had documented. So here you have the sense that the discourse needs to move. It needs to be portable. We need to be able to tell this in a language that epidemiologists and journalists will understand, but it can't become a story that gets uprooted from the from the people who are part of the knowledge production process and from the bodies 
and from the work of mourning. It has to still be part of the work of mourning. Mm -hmm. So the photographer shows up, and rather than saying, here we are, we're the heroes, take our picture, they take this envelope with ten, approximately ten of the photographs that I'd taken, and they pull them out. And They didn't give either of us one. We weren't offered one. Right? They took them, and then Tirso, Norbelis, and Enrique held up these photographs. Mm -hmm. So keeping is, if it were, the sound of the lament. And one of the photographs, of course, is of the father singing a lament for his daughter uh -huh. in that moment. But, of course, also one place I go is to the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina with their grandmothers. And one of their ways of being able to, when they, uh, to be able to perform protest was to wear a photograph of their disappeared child or grandchild on their bodies. Absolutely. And, you know, Enrique is a news junkie. He's got a direct TV connection there. I'm sure that that process, the act, this was also an act of work, that was the work of mourning, but also an act of protest, mm -hmm. of saying they are relatives mm -hmm. of this young woman who died, Elbia, and of wearing her photograph on their body was part of that process of saying, these lives are grievable. And we will, uh, we will not leave until the value of those lives and their grievability is officially recognized. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the ethics of soundscapes, which was a, a lovely phrase, and I wondered if there was anything more you wanted to say about it. Maybe we've touched on that, but about how in the laments there's an ethics of soundscapes. And uh, what, did you, what did you mean by that? Here I would invite psychoanalysts to read um, a leading work in anthropology by a colleague of mine here at Berkeley, Charles Hirschkind, mm. where he looked at um, people listening to um, uh, sermons. Right. So he was also thinking about how what's the site of performativity in Islam. Right. So what is it? And he suggested that rather than thinking about speaking, the production of discourse, the power of performativity often lies in acts of listening. Mm -hmm. The cultivation of the body and of the entire person through practices of listening and the ethical requirements of those practices of listening. And there's a vast and wonderful literature about cultures of listening um, that think about this particular issue, how we're trained to listen. One would so, think psychoanalysts and psychoanalysis needs to know about this literature. Well, there was this guy, absolutely. I mean, I think that there would be a powerful dialogue. I mean, you think, and I think he actually references Lacan in that book, but you think about Lacan, he says, you know, what is psychoanalysis? It's listening. Mm -hmm. What drives patients crazy? It is that what does the analyst do? Listens, mm -hmm. right? And therefore, I think that it was powerful to think about that, um, that parallel. Absolutely, and of course, as an analyst, I know so much how difficult it is to listen, how much that is an embodied experience. And I think contemporary psychoanalysts really do talk about the way in which listening is a physical experience. It is not ever only an uh, intellectual experience. It's not just hearing words. It's feeling things and having it be under your skin and having the experience. So it's very much in keeping with what that process is. And that's the hardest thing about the job, right? Um, I, I did want to talk about uh, the current epidemic in the news because this is an, 
a letter that's written about the rabies epidemic that you identified and brought to attention in 2008. And here we are in 2014, and there is another racialized epidemic happening. And really what's so, uh, what's so profound in it about Ebola is that I was reading the letter to Dr. Freud at the time that I was also reading in the front page of the New York Times articles about the mourning specifically and the funerals in areas of, of uh, Sierra Leone and uh, places where the epidemic is taking place. And the, and the description from the Western media about um, explicitly saying that Ebola is a epidemic that isolates and that leaves mourners silent and alone and that they're unmourned bodies. And I thought, wow, that's just remarkable. This is a, a gross distortion, I'm sure, of what's happening with regards to the funerals and the and the losses and the mourning and how much it it both distorts and obliterates an understanding, makes it so much the other, as you were saying, a primitive thing and and clearly is neither has an anthropological or psychoanalytic eye to what's happening. Uh, one thing that anthropologists would often go to these days might be the work of Paul Farmer, who emphasized mm -hmm. the term geographies of mm -hmm. blame. Um, when you use a term like HIV or cholera or now Ebola, there become a range of subject positions that are possible. One can be um, someone who represents modernity and medical knowledge who now must come and bring technologies and bring vaccines to do the work of saving and the work of rationalizing what is seen as being a disorderly situation. To rationalize, to order, to discipline disorderly bodies, or you can be one of those disorderly bodies. Mm -hmm. There are very few positions. As a mm. matter of fact, it was actually interesting on Democracy Now! this morning, Larry, Larry Garrett was commenting on it and said, well, you know, even the aid workers, gee, they lose discipline after an hour in those hot suits and they themselves become infected, except for Medicine-Saint-Frontier, they haven't had any cases. It was as if now the health workers themselves are also disorderly, are caught within the geography of blame. Remarkable. And, you know, this is a, a rather old trope. If you look at medical history, this is in you know, the history of medicine. Colonialism is precisely was defined often in terms of this trope. India, after, quote, the mutiny, right? It was very... It seemed very apparent that Indians did not want the British there. So how do you rationalize it, including the people back home who say, get out of there, what are you doing? Seeing the horrors of colonialism, well, they need us to save them from cholera, plague, and smallpox because they can't save themselves. So the power of that performative word, and we see this captured so clearly in even in the photographs that appear in the New York Times. Of the Ebola. Of the Ebola. So here you have, so consistently, it's a photograph and you see piles of trash in the background. Yes. Where, which has absolutely no part in the particular narrative, the, at least the explicit frame that's being conveyed. So here all of a sudden the idea that, you know, look at these disorderly bodies, disorderly environments. Um, it seems to make these epidemics just seem natural. Not thinking about political economy, not thinking about the worldwide distribution of disease and access to health care, but also access 
to discourse about disease, the right to people to be able to say, to represent, to be able to to be able to intervene and to talk about the factors that shape their own health. And so, here the trope of mourning that you identified is just brilliant because, you know, in excess of mourning, those people touch the bodies of the victims and that's how it's spreading. By the way, cholera epidemic, world-class epidemiology in Latin America in 1991 and 92, same thing, right? Oh, these Latin Americans, they have cholera because they have excessive engagement with mourning and wakes and also sharing of food at weddings. I, do, I don't want to stop without um, talking about what is a major part of the letter, and a brilliant part of the letter, I think, which is how in this letter to Dr. Freud you also define a new role and definition for the anthropologist. And as, if I understand it correctly, as a mobile agent that can aid in analytic terms, new mentalization, a mobile agent that can can aid new ways of thinking about subjectivities and the other, and new ways to think not only about epidemics, but also about loss and mourning, and that anthropologists, this is a, this is a new role for anthropologists. Um, and I think that's the part where you talk about Anna Cheng's work and say, you know, the idea that, of melancholia that shapes subjectivity and racialized inequalities. So I wondered if you could just review a little bit about how you conceptualize this new role for anthropologists that you revealed to Dr. Freud. <laughs> um, well, thanks. It, there are many ways in which I think anthropologists, like many other um, scholars, as well as practitioners, have really tried to think more critically about some of the underpinnings of their own practices and think about the possibility of being able to approach their work from different sorts of angles. I mean, Isabel Stingers has a wonderful um, sort of way of thinking about this, of slowing down, mm -hmm. of slowing down arguments, of stopping arguments that seem to move too quickly and saying, well, wait a minute, what makes them work so effectively? What are other sorts of possibilities? And one thing that fa I found fascinating was that you know, this questioning assumptions this, the, the need to be able to think about what is death? How is it that as an anthropologist here, I'm interpreted in this particular, what is, you know, what does it mean to diagnose a disease? None of this sort of started from a, gee, I think I'll write experimentally. Gee, I think I'll think about to deconstruct some of these basic questions. But it was the moment of being interpolated, of being grabbed, of being transfixed, mm -hmm. of being required to respond in some way, not in the substance of my response, but to be able to have to respond and to respond in bodily terms, in affective terms, in ways that sometimes were very difficult, to be able to, def to respond in theoretical terms all at the same time. So part of me was fascinating to sort of think about the ways in which we get interpolated, and we get interpolated by these sorts of, this was not a body of work that began, as I mentioned, you know, at the University of California, Berkeley, sitting there in a conference, in a library, on the internet, or in a consideration of national health policies or of constitutions. This was in the middle of the worst case scenario. And it was precisely when people who were stereotyped as themselves incapable of understanding modernity were actually entirely examining its very premises and trying to come up with other alternatives. So what would it mean 
if we sort of thought about how it is that we ourselves get interpolated by the work of mourning. And this doesn't mean following around people who are dying or dead, but to think about how it is that the very sorts of poetic forms, the very sorts of forms of engagement that seem to grab us within the world, including in Berkeley. I mean, think about South and North Berkeley, where you have as gross a set of health disparities as you would find um, really across the nation. How is it that we ourselves are called to be able to think about the sort of work that we do and the possibilities of understanding? And so m my sense was that also reaching, being reached by this poetics that required us to learn new ways of listening and to think about the ethical requirements that are in some sense given to us through those acts might be a fascinating sort of way to think about redefining the work of anthropology, the work of epidemiology. Mm -hmm. Epidemiologists came into these communities where 10% of the population had died and said, give me their names, give me their date of birth, you know, when did they first get their symptoms? But they never said, tell me their stories. And what have you, what work of knowledge production have you done? How could we engage collaboratively? And I mean, everyone's done. You can't figure it out. You might want to actually think outside of the box. Well, and what, what you're proposing then is that you have to lend yourself to listen in such a way that you don't know how you'll be altered. You don't know how your own subjectivity is going to be reconstructed through the process as well of listening to what people have to say who you're looking at and who you're working with, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Marie. What a, what a gift, and uh, I hope that listeners are as appreciative of your kindness in speaking with me as I am. Ah, you're quite welcome. And, and would it be too much to say that we can hope that Dr. Freud got the letter? <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be returned to sender. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod. We'd like to thank Professor Briggs and Dr. Katz for talking to us about their research. You can read Dr. Briggs' letters to Dr. Freud for free at our website, callanth.org. While you're there, you can also read a recent collection of short articles about how anthropologists are thinking through the current Ebola epidemic in Liberia. And you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. If you're already a subscriber, please take a minute to rate and review us. If you'd like to find out more about what cultural anthropology is all about, then connect with us. We're on Twitter at CullAnth and on Facebook at Cultural Anthropology. And keep checking back at cullanth.org for more updates. And thank you, Darren. This is Darren's first podcast with us. He came to the Anthropod team with this great idea for an episode, and we were able to guide him through the process of making it. Uh, Darren, how was this experience for you? It was a great opportunity to engage a really thought-provoking article with Charles and Maureen. It was also a really good chance for me to work on my audio editing skills. Well, if you have your own idea for an Anthropod episode based on an article in the Journal of Cultural Anthropology or on another topic of anthropological interest, then send us an email, anthropod at cullanth.org. No prior podcast experience is needed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another exciting look into the world of anthropology. Anthropology.